Hello and welcome to another episode of PCLOTR, where we are breaking down Prime Video Rings of Power one episode at a time. Today we are breaking down Episode 7, The Eye. I'm Joe Stark from StarkCast Podcast. With me today is Jake from PCL. Hey, thanks Joe. Excited to talk about this one. And Billy Blinks from the Reality Guys Podcast. As always, super psyched to go over Lord of the Rings. And no Brian with us this week, but he will be back next. Um, guys, this is, we are the on the penultimate episode of season one now. Um, this one was, I, I don't know what you guys thought, but I felt like this one kind of got some stuff done in it that I expected to happen in the finale. So a part of me is wondering what the hell is going to happen in the finale now. This was, it had some penultimate episode stuff in it, but but not really quite a lot. Um, like, what did you guys think of this one just in a nutshell? I thought it was a big table setter episode. I also kind of appreciated some of the things that I'm seeing some kind of criticisms about the episode is we had such a major terraforming event at the end of last episode, you know, obviously the stuff with Adar's plan coming to fruition with the Mount Doom eruption with, as we've seen by the end of this episode, Mordor itself being established in its infancy and I believe it was kind of necessary to let that breathe a little bit. I, I thought it would have been a little disingenuous. One of the best things about the show has been the pace and how we move from large event to large event. But, I mean, this was a cataclysmic event. And I do like that they did allow, at least on that storyline front, for it to breathe. And also with the other storylines, not maybe trying to one-up what we just saw last week and maybe go more for kind of emotional stakes and kind of political moves. So overall, I thought the episode had a hard task to tell, and I think it navigated it pretty well. Where would you rank this episode really quickly, Billy? In the middle. I'd say in the middle. middle. Probably, again, it's, I think, a testament to how I've enjoyed a lot of the episodes, probably in the lower half. Uh, But that being said, it is a very tough spot to have to follow the events of last week. This is my least favorite episode so far. Easily. This is the first time watching the show that I actually got like upset at a couple points, um, especially after watching it more than once now. Um, and overall, I still think it's very high quality for like I 85 percent really enjoyed this episode. But the 15 percent that annoyed me really annoyed me. And I can't stand the Isildur storyline. And it just really bothers me. I think it would have been way more interesting to play the is he or isn't he dead game with the character where we could actually have some speculation about that. Like if you make that character Halibrand instead and he's gone for the episode and the audience or the characters don't see what happened to him, then, I mean, that just leads to all kinds of rampant speculation and fun times. But the Azildor thing is just a giant waste of time. We all know that he's not dead. I mean, maybe there's some people out there that don't know and lucky them, but so I just can't get behind any of the drama involving his father and all the sadness there. And um, I also thought that the, the the Mordor reveal was very, very cheesy. And every time I watch it after the first time, and just with the – not the visual. The visual was great. But I, I hate the uh, location erasing and the Mordor burning in. I just thought that was way too on the nose. I cringed the first time I saw it, and it makes me cringe even more every time I've seen it since. That's a fair take, dude. I had the same feeling on that moment where I was just like, oh, okay, that's that's what we're doing here. It could have been done in in any number of, of better ways, but the, but that is what they gave us. 
And I, I when I watched it the sec after knowing what happens the first time, the like every other time I watch it, I hear like the uh, eraser on the chalkboard noise in my brain <laughs> when it's happening. It's like ee, 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 and then the Mordor birds in. And I agree, Joe. You could have done it a million ways more tactful. And I think the best way is just saying Mordor. Like we know what it once was. If it just would have said Mordor, I would have like jaw dropped a lot more instead of like being distracted by the cheesy trick. <laughs> yeah, it I, really I, wasn't much of a surprise. What were you saying, Billy? I you know, I think I agree with that point, Jake. I mean, because the kind of you, if you think about the shot there, it, it does zoom in to Adar. You know, he's about to say it. I think even just leaving it unsaid, we all know what it is. Like you said, the the extra over explaining did seem like a real push for a casual audience just to make sure they're like, hey, guys, look, no, we're not pulling the rug out from on you. This really is Mordor. Uh, I do agree on the Isildur point. Uh, Joe and I were kind of joking a little bit about that pre-show, but what's frustrating, too, about it is, I mean, to be fair, Elendil, he didn't really look that hard. Like, he didn't question much. I mean, the horse, obviously, you go through establishing how the horses have a, a, a spiritual connection, almost a symbiotic connection to their riders. Like, I, I feel audience members pick up right away, like, oh, this horse knows the guy's not alive. I just don't know why Elendil wouldn't pick that up. I don't understand mm-hmm. that right away. Elendil is supposed to be this figure who is so dedicated to the old Numenor, the right Numenor. And before the queen kind of goes, no, we're going to be coming back. You kind of see those the anger coming out and him maybe going to make a big character shift to being more pro the human side of Numenor. And to me, that was a little bit of fr- the frustrating part to this character. I think that we've built up to be this very stoic man and, uh, you know, a, a family man to really flip instantly is not what I think his son would have wanted. Yeah. I, I think those are very fair, fair points as well. Agreed. Agreed. And, and them doing that with a character that it's like, well, we know that this is going to be the man that eventually cuts the ring from Sauron's hand. So obviously he's going to be around. And yeah, I thought that was, that was a little bit of a stretch for me, too. Um, if they would have only contained that within this episode, I don't think it would have bothered me as much. But to leave it be like a more than one episode dangling thread, that's where I kind of roll my eyes. Like, just show us, show the audience the body. And let's move on. Like, let's stop playing stupid. <laughs> Absolutely. And, I, and I'm I'm complaining right up top because I, I really like I really did enjoy this episode. And for the most part, I, it was gorgeous. I loved it. I love the stuff with the Harfoots. I I really dug this episode. But the two glaring things I hated were the most I've hated anything the entire run of this show so far. <laughs> yeah, I, more I than think the that's intro, fair. more than the intro. I, I've actually I, – I, I didn't want to admit it, but I love the intro now. Whoa. <laughs> it's grown on me too. <laughs> vi- visually, I still think like they could have done way better. But like I can hum that that theme right now if you want me to from beginning to end. Like I fucking love it. Good stuff, man. Um, yeah, you guys want to jump into the episode breakdown? Yeah, let's do it. All right, let's start on our Kaza Doom storyline. Uh, we begin with Elrond making a proposal to the Dwarven King Durin. Uh, he's telling him that in exchange for access to the Mithril Mines, the elves are prepared to furnish the city with game, grain, and timber from the Elder Forests of Eriador for the next five centuries. Uh, there's a couple dwarves that are hanging out in the room behind Elrond, and they're whispering to each other in their own language, and basically saying this is quite a promise if the elves can keep it. 
And Elrond hears this and, and he replies in the same language and he tells them that he's never made a promise that he didn't. And uh, King Durin is is seemingly impressed with this. He says, I see you've learned a few words of stone tongue and referring to the, the dwarven language. Um, and he, he questions why they should trust the word of an elf. And in Elrond, he kind of prost- uh, prost- well, I'll choose a different word there. <laughs> he kind of like kneels down before the king and he tells him that, that he shouldn't trust the elves, but that he can trust him because he's in half. He's a half elf. And he can see in the elves what they cannot see for themselves. And yeah, he's, he's taken a knee before the king and he's, he's begging for help saving his people. And it, it seemed to me like King Durin was really looking at it and really kind of weighing that proposal. And, you know, then he asks for the room so he can speak with his son alone. Um, uh, what did you guys think of this, this just opening bit of this Casa Doom storyline? I liked it a lot. Um, I love the Elrond stuff. I like that he's kind of inferring that, yes, I know the elves are kind of shady at times. <laughs> the way he changes the phrasing of Durin. Um, I thought this was a great scene. I loved all the Elrond stuff this episode. I, I think. Yeah, go ahead, Billy. I, I think it's just such an interesting kind of place for us as viewers to be in with this storyline. And it, obviously this kind of applies to a lot of the show. But with this storyline specifically, when you're talking about Doran debating with his father and the kind of if you look at it at a surface level, yeah, you should try to help others and keep others alive. But as viewers, we know that King Durin is actually right. You know, and it's he's being let's just say it, he's being a dick. And like to his son, he's like, You're being you what are you doing? You're being so short-sighted, you're being greedy, you're just saying, leave it to the will of the gods. But like we know, like he's right. He's 100% right. What they're about to do is what literally is going to ruin their kingdom. And But it's such an interesting because even though we know that they're about to make a mistake, you still find yourself as a viewer rooting for King Durin to say, yeah, dig. And it's so it's such an interesting, <laughs> weird place to be in. Yeah, yeah this is an instance where it's really fun to know what's coming next. Yeah, absolutely. Because in it, it tears you as a viewer because you're on you're on Prince Durin and Elrond's side through this. And and I don't know about you guys, but these two characters continue to be the beating heart of this show for me. The relationship they have with each other, and especially Durin, just with I don't know, I'm just always with that guy. It's so easy to empathize with with him. Yeah, I agree with that completely. They're they're the heart of the show. Like I, jumping ahead a little bit, like when they did the uh, fake out goodbye, I didn't know it was going to be a fake out goodbye, and I'm basically in tears. Oh yeah, yeah, I, I was tearing up just as much as Duran was during that scene. Um, yeah, that fake out. <laughs> <laughs> I like how King Duran says to his son. He said, "It is said that when Aule created our people, he crafted us of two elements: fire and rock." The rock that lives within us hungers for the eternal, resisting the pull of time, but the fire embraces the truth that all things must one day be consumed and fade away to ash. And and yeah, he's, he's basically, he's not going to budge. He forbids the mining of Mithril. He says it's too dangerous to the dwarves, and he's not going to sacrifice dwarven lives to help the elves live forever. Ever. And, you know, Prince Durin is very upset, and he's he, he doesn't want to see his friend leave. And and his father is just resolute. He says the fate of the elves was decided many ages ago by minds much much wiser and much far seeing than our own. Defy their will, and this kingdom might fall, perhaps the entire Middle Earth. And so there's definitely something that it feels like King Durin knows here 
that it's like, does he have some sort of premonition of, of the Balrog that could be awoken if they do this? Or is he just merely concerned with, hey, we can't mine this stuff. There's already been one cave in. Um, what angle do you think that, that he's coming at this from? As a as a, if you're going strictly as a viewer just off the show, I mean, they definitely are doing some type of inference that he he knows more than he's leading on. I don't think he knows of the Balrog specifically that it's definitely there. Maybe he knows of legends. If you want to dive into kind of the lore background, I mean, there are plenty of instances in history in Middle Earth of there being elvish and dwarvish um, battles and, and bloodshed and betrayal. I mean, there's the Nargothron, which was the elvish kingdom and the Noglamir, which was an elvish necklace that ended up having one of the Silmarils and the dwarves not giving back, you know, not getting the payment they deserved in an old deal. And literally elves slaughtered all the dwarves in this case. So, I mean, there is literal history and we could dive in long into other stories like that, but I think it's a combination of just from a storytelling point of the show kind of leading you to believe he knows what something is going on. And also if you dive, like I said, into the lore, there definitely is literal bad blood between the two races. Yeah. Even if you just take it at face value, like let's just say King Durin is the smartest guy in the room when it comes to protecting dwarf lives. It's very admirable that he would choose dwarf lives over the mithril. Like that's that's not an easy thing to do. Like uh, I think almost every other character would struggle with that choice, and he's very like foot in the ground that it's not worth it. Well, and, and look what the elves are offering: five hundred years of game and and food and and timber and I mean that's that's huge. Five hundred years. Yeah. I I brainstormed about that scenario a bunch. Like what happens on the five hundred and first year? Are they just like all right, you're cut off? where's the renewal where's the renewal clause in the contract i mean only the elves can offer a 500 year contract yeah can they re-sign that lease i guess if they still have mithril in mind probably (laughs) yeah it's like hope you remember how to hunt in there hey i didn't sign this deal you know this is bs you know that was under duress you you, did you know that there was a balrog there like obviously his 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 judgment was impaired Is the Balrog like grandfathered into that deal? Do the elves have to like give him stuff now? If, if this is like a home purchase, there's an inspection clause. I'd like to think so. Did they not let them into the Mithril caves to do the inspection before they made this deal? I don't know, but it was um, <laughs> it was. I mean, I know we're jumping around, but I mean that was a starking, a stark visual to see that too. I'm like, oh, they're really going there. They are really hammering home right away. The 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 gravity of this decision like we all know where it's going but they made sure that if anyone wasn't sure where this was going they made sure we got out of this episode and like you said joe seemed like we had talked about a few episodes ago like i thought that could have been the finale shot was the balrog so what the hell is the finale it's got to be sauron next week right i mean like what the hell else can we get to end the damn season <laughs> absolutely yeah talk of rings <laughs> I know. Yeah, like, I, when yeah, are they going to start the talking rings, about the rings yeah, of power? I, <laughs> I feel like that's going to make a play in the in the tenth episode. Oh, for sure. There, I, there has to be some sort of mention of it. Something. I wonder if it'll come if from Albran. <laughs> if we're jumping to the Balrog already, I thought once I saw the Balrog, it, that that really like firmly connected this show to the Peter Jackson trilogy to me. Oh, like yeah. at this point, it's just we're a hundred percent all in. It's connected to that. I mean, Howard Shore does the opening music. The Balrog looks 
you know, basically the same with better special effects, but like the design has not been changed much at all. Like I, I instantly recognized this as that Balrog. Oh, for sure. Yeah. They definitely kept that design on it. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, let's see, jumping back to where we were, uh, the scene shifts to, uh, Disa and Prince Durin speaking in their quarters. Uh, Disa is smithing an ax and she's absolutely raging out about King Durin's decision. And the, I really like this part. Prince Durin just kind of quietly asks, what if he's right? And, you know, us as viewers, we know he is, but Disa isn't hearing it. She wants to reopen the mind themselves and, you know, maybe even do it in such a way to, to prove to King Durin that they're right and force his hand. But Durin rightly argues with her that they can't disobey the king. And, and he really has a, a good bit here where he says, you know, like, what kind of father would I be if I was teaching my children that, you know, the words of a king don't really matter if, if you disagree with it. And, and then it turns into like this really funny exchange between the two of them where Disa apologizes for saying mean things about, about, <laughs> about Duran's dad. And she says that she hates it when he heaps slag on, on her mother. And so then D- uh, Duran has this really funny joke, kind of spinning it around on, on, on uh, Disa's mom and then her eyes flare in anger and he's like, I'm joking. I'm joking. Um, I love the relationship between those two. It's, it's, it adds yet again into the beating heart of this show because we haven't seen many other characters like other than with the Harfoots where it's like an actual couple, like in, and to have these exchanges between a husband and a wife in this show, it, it just adds that much more level of humanity you know, to, to non-human characters. And so it's just so cool that they write in this in a way that, that we can empathize so strongly with, with characters that aren't even human. And um, Elrond enters and sees the bad news on Durin's face. Uh, Durin doesn't even need to tell him. Elrond just sees it and and asks him, Durin says, so this is goodbye then. And he's got tears welling in his eyes. And Elrond replies, we do not say goodbye. And he smiles and puts a hand on his friend's shoulder and says, we say, and Durin joins him, he says, we say Numar, Numarie. And Elrond continues and uh, he says it means more than simply farewell, it means go towards goodness. And Elrond then returns the mithril nugget and leaves. And Durin is just absolutely crushed. He he sits down at his table, he looks at the mithril nugget in his hand, kind of in disgust, he slides it across the table, where it goes sliding across and comes to a rest right next to the leaf that was from Linden that has all the rot in it. And the camera pans in on the leaf and the darkness just starts fading away from it and leaves it once again pristine. And Dura and Deeson just watch this in wonder and then Duran immediately hollers for Elrond. And I thought this part was amazing because it really showed that, that Gil-Galad and Celebrimbor weren't just after Mithril for the sake of riches. Like this... This proves out their theory. This mithril really does reverse this darkness that's settling in. Yeah, I was surprised by that. We speculated that maybe it was just all a bit of a con to make it seem much more dire than it was. So, um, And honestly, I lean towards that being the case more so than this. So I was very taken aback by this leaf scene. I thought it was really cool. Obviously an awesome visual. I, I love that again, that they didn't drag out that Elrond obviously wasn't gone and that this was, this is going to continue into next week right away. Um, I also, like you said, kind of going back to Disa. I love the Disa character. I do love in this show that they are, they do have some really strong partnerships. So the Dorn and Disa, the Arendir and Bronwyn. 
I, I really have loved that they have brought that again, that human element into this world that really anchors us and connects us and gives us some emotional stakes that allows us to have things we care about outside of the major events that we do kind of have a roadmap already laid out for. Yeah, Disa's great. That hard cut from Doran and King Doran to Decent or Disa being angry about it was one of my favorite cuts of the episode. Oh, for sure. And the and how rules. how talented is she also? I mean, she can she can resonate rock. She she she's raising a family. She can apparently cook all sorts of different things, and she can smith axe or smith a new axe. Like and all in a dress, <laughs> like just incredible. And and I loved it that it looked like this little forge is actually in their quarters because you see at the bottom of the steps below it there are the big stone masks that the the kids were wearing in I think it was episode two. Yes. So, yeah. I so mean, that was fun. The prince should have a nice personal suite, but it is you know usually have a, a an on suite or something or an in law suite, but he has a forge. So. <laughs> And, and the tree and that private tree guard. I mean, he's got a cool place. Yeah, it's good to be the king's son, right? <laughs> yeah, for now. Yeah, Not for anymore. Now. <laughs> <laughs> so Elrond and Prince Durin are now slowly mining for Mithril together. And it's it's a slow going process. They, they uh, Durin hammers away for a little bit. Uh, a tremor will happen. And then they'll just kind of wait for the rock to resettle. And so during one of these breaks... Elrond offers Durin a drink and the dwarf declines. And he says, self-discipline, Master Elf. And Elrond kind of smiles at him and says, think that'll bring you success. And Durin replies, it did in our contest. Did it? Asks Elrond. And then Durin kind of looks at him and he's like, no, you lost on purpose. (laughs) And Elrond kind of smiles and he, he finally admits, I was winded. And so, I mean, that's something that we speculated at back on, on episode two was, did did he throw this on purpose? Because we speculated that when the hammer broke. I love yeah, that. it was really cool to get that answer. I never thought we were going to go back and talk about that again. No, no, I, I loved it that they called back to that. Elrond is that dude, man. Elrond is great. Like, there has not been one Elrond thing so far where you're just like, oh, and I'm sure at some point in the series, he'll do something that will frustrate us. But so far, man, he has just been spot on with his decisions, his humility. He, he he doesn't anger when he doesn't get what he wants. He just has this, again, he just has this thousand foot view of everything and just takes things in stride that is such a stark contrast from what we see with like Galadriel throughout the season. Agreed. Yeah. <clears throat> and so then Durin says, I always thought you were a might dwarvish for an elf. And Elrond replies, and you are a rather elvish dwarf, Durin, son of Durin, grandson of Durin. <laughs> And and Durin tells him the mightiest thing a dwarf can do is to be worthy of the name of his father. And Durin then tells him that they have secret names among the dwarves that only their family ever knows. And he begins to tell tell Elrond his name, but Elrond stops him short and tells him to save it for the far side. So I, I took that to mean let's let's save it until after, you know, we've we've accomplished our, our goal here. Big is that a real thing? Is that a real token thing? I was wondering about that. I, I don't remember that, and, and I'd love if our any of our listeners could could reveal that. That's really cool. I would tend to lean like it probably is Jake because what made it me is. think of if you guys ever read like Aragon, that was a big thing in Aragon where in the, that that dragon series where it's if you had the true name, 
you held a lot of power over someone. So Joe, you're saying it is a real thing? Yes. And and I think the dwarves language is called Kazda. And there's that's why King Durin was so impressed when Elrond spoke it, because that language is supposed to be spoken only by the dwarves. Like if you go back in the text, there's a handful of elves from the first age that could speak it. But the thing with the dwarves having private names that only other dwarves, only people in their family and their clan know that that is straight from the text. That's awesome. Really, really cool. That's like I said, when you hear it, something in another fantasy text years later, I tend to assume it comes somewhere from Tolkien or <laughs> that would take it somewhere from some kind of like medieval lore or legend or myth. So really, really, really cool. Yeah, absolutely. And they, they continue to mine until another tremor strikes and then Durin's able to knock a hole into the middle of this boulder and they look through it. It's, it's basically just forms this little window in the back of this tunnel that they're chambering and they look through it and it's just these huge, thick veins of mithril that are running out throughout the mountain. And, and they, their excitement is very short lived because before they know it, King Durin has suddenly arrived. He's got guards with him. He is absolutely pissed off. And immediately tosses Elrond out of Casa Doom, <laughs> like all the way out the fucking gate. And uh, Elrond just kind of sits, sits on this rock outside, and he he looks at this nugget of mithril in his hand. So I mean, at least he is going back to. I presume he's going to be heading back to Eriador, and he's going with mithril in his hand. And we do know that at least one of the Elven rings that Celebrimbor makes on his own is made of mithril. And so I'm curious if this mithril from this nugget is what's going to be making um, the ring that I think it's the ring that, that Galadriel ends up wearing. I bet you it is a hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, it just seems likely. Um, but uh, Prince Durin and his father uh, kind of have a, a nice chat about the, the King is telling his son about when he was, when he was born, he had a very sickly birth. And and nobody really thought he was going to live, but the king would, would sit and hold his son every night. And one night, the king saw a vision of a long gray beard on his baby's face, and he knew in that moment that his son would grow into this strong king that would one day move mountains. And we get we get this fantastic rebuttal from, from Prince Darren here, where he says, How do you expect me to move mountains, father, if you fall to pieces when I dig a single hole? And And he says that he's not allowed to do anything. He's not allowed to do anything that doesn't originate in his father's head. And they really have it out. And, and Durin tells his father that, that he considers Elrond to be his brother as though he came from his own mother. And man, this is the part where he just, it was too far for, for King Durin. He absolutely flips out when, when he brings up his mother, he, the King freaks out. He, he removes Durin's crest from around his neck that that has the runes and stuff on him, assuming that that must be like a mark of his station. And he removes the crest, drops it on the ground, starts to walk away. Durin picks it up and his father tells him to leave it because it's not his anymore. And so like his father's so mad. He's, did you read this? Is he's, he's essentially disowning his son? Yeah. It, well, maybe not necessarily disowning him, but definitely taking away his right to like succession. Wow. Right? So he's no longer Prince yeah. Durin is, is kind of the way I, I looked at it. That's how Correct. I looked at it as well. It wasn't like he was saying you aren't my son, but like removing like the, like the name of Durin, you know, in, in a way, you know, and, and I'm sure, again, 
events will happen that are going to to change that or but i'm curious if there is going to be an actual reconciliation between the two before events occur and if they don't i could see that being a real kind of character driving event for you know, prince doran and maybe for kind of maybe a little fissure between himself and elrond because we do see that if like we're saying that we're fully accepting this is the jackson you know if the jackson prequels Elrond does have some not great words to say about the dwarves during their time in Rivendell and during the Council of Elrond saying they only care about their themselves, basically, and their their treasures. So that's right now not our Elrond. So there's going to have to be some types of fissure between them a little bit for him to have those thoughts by the time we get to the Fellowship. Yeah, I totally agree. And then when you play on the fact that just earlier in this scene, Durin tells Elrond that you know, the the best thing that a dwarf can hope to be is to be worthy of his father's name. And then this huge altercation with his father, where it seems like his father's saying, you're not worthy for this name. So that's, that's, that is quite a blow. And then we, we see Durin and Disa uh, back talking in their chambers again. And Durin is, is worried that he failed Elrond. And Disa really kind of props him up. And she says, no, this is your father's fault. And one day, Durin the fourth will be king. That mithril belongs to us, to you and me, and together one day we are going to dig. And so it, it sounds like they are firmly entrenched in their ways, and they're saying, hey, someday you're going to be king, and then you're going to be able to decide whether we do this or not. And then we get a, a brief scene where King Durin is down at the mine, and he's looking at this leaf that had all the darkness sucked out of it, whereas at the beginning of the episode, he's holding it while Elrond's kind of telling this whole story. And so the king knows that, hey, this this leaf has had its darkness pulled out of it, and he doesn't care. He he looks at it, it's, picks it up from the floor of the mithril mine, and he tosses it in the hole and tells his people to seal it up. And then we get this we get this shot that shows that this mithril goes very, very far deep under the mountain. And it goes I mean, it the, the veins are just thicker than than I would have ever imagined. And uh, it falls through all these different levels of these chambers before it eventually hits a floor and catches fire. And then we see the Balrog wake up just in the background behind the leaf and roar in anger. And yeah, I mean, what a way to, to end this storyline. Yeah, I'm kind of curious. Maybe we won't even go back to this at all, right? It feels like they showed us the Balrog. Maybe they're going to hold this stuff until season two. Uh, that's my thought the as final, well. The final episode is going to have so much ground to cover that this seems like a good stomping off point for this storyline. Yeah, that's thinking the same thing. Or maybe if they do something to speed along that process of, of during the third passing and then during the fourth ascending the throne. Yeah, I, I could see us maybe not going back to Casa Doom itself. I think we could have Elrond. In Linden, I think we could have some of the characters like, you know, coming together. We know that Galadriel and Halbrand are heading there. So I, I agree. Maybe we are done per se with the location of Casa Doom for the season, but I do think the conversations around the Mithril and everything else going on will be uh will be addressed. So I don't think we'll not hear or talk about that anymore, but we may Oh, I agree. We're 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 Hundo Celebrimbor again in the finale. There's just no way around it. Uh, no, yeah, I totally agree. definitely there. Sure. Um, okay, so switching over to the Harfoots, uh, we they are still on the trail, and we get another little bit 
of another of Poppy's traveling songs as uh, she and the Brandyfoots are making their way along the trail. And Largo, he, he's really being their cheerleader. I, I think this guy without like a wagon to pull on his own, he might have a little bit too much energy. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up, dude. He needs an outlet. <laughs> and I love that, that he shouts that they're getting close. And, and he's immediately chastised to essentially crying wolf. They're saying, yeah, you said that the other day. And, and then Nori agrees. Like, she's like, no, I, 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 I recognize this too. And she smells wood smoke and she is excitedly tells Poppy that she thinks the others have started baking and they come up to the top of a hill and that smell of wood smoke is not from baking. It is the smell of charred apple trees. Uh, the grove is not the way that the Harfoots remember it. it. It has been partially burned. There's some big craters in the ground with smoking bits of rock. And Sadik says that his great grand used to speak of mountains to the south that could spit fire rock. Uh, said that they go to sleep sometimes for hundreds of years only to wake again when a new evil is rising. And Poppy and Nori exchange a nervous glance and look to the stranger. And he's just kind of up on a hill by himself looking at one of these trees that's all burned up. All, all the apples that are hanging from these trees are in a really sad state. I, I was watching him pick these gray, gross apples going, can you even eat these damn things? <laughs> like, they just I would look guess like no. ash. Yeah. And so it's... It, are they just covered in ash or are they actually burned like charred apples? I don't know. I but. think they're like petrified, like just completely charred up. Yeah. This guy cracks me up. He's heard of everything. In some way, some form, he's either read a book, someone's told him about, he knows about everything somehow, this guy. Like, he's every episode, he's like, oh yeah, I've heard about that. It's like, what? Do you, what? It's like, how have you heard about all of this? Like, why has anyone else heard about this crap? <laughs> yeah, Sardak is an exposition master, for sure. <laughs> yes, he is our Johnny Explain It All. <laughs> <laughs> oh so, yeah i forgot about that <laughs> <laughs> so sad sadik asked nori if she can ask the stranger to to do his thing and fix the grove and nori is you know she's pretty freaked out the last the last time that she was with the stranger was when he was healing his arm and she kind of got caught up in it and i think she's really rightfully afraid of magic, whereas the others are just looking at it as hey it's this great thing that can help us whereas poppy and nori really kind of know that no that there is a price to be paid here and so static he he's not having it and he says that he's just going to go ask him for himself and so the we then see the stranger looking over the tree and he's mumbling to himself while the harfoots are gathered and and watching and he's hold on a sec i should have i got the words here he was saying so as he's doing this he's running his hands over the bark and he's saying Envayada lote na. Now these essentially mean renew and heal and uh, like flower. So renew, heal, uh, uh, you know, flower, come back. So he's basically encouraging this tree to to come back to life. And he's got his hands on his tree on the tree bark while he's saying it. And Nori's it keeps showing Nori's eyes just darting around nervously. And the camera zooms in on the stranger's eye as he continues his incantations. And the tree is shaking and it's causing ash to fall from its branches. And one of the little Harfoot kids is watching in wonder. And Largo says, it's working. 
And the, the stranger starts shouting his words and the bark begins to split along the sides of the trees. And Nori's little brother steps forward watching in wonder. And the stranger shouts and a large branch breaks loose from the top of the tree. And Nori rushes forward and kind of tackles the little Harfoot, pulling him to the ground and, you know, kind of putting herself on top of him to shield this little child. And the Harfoots all rush forward and start clearing away the branches and we get another look of the stranger just looking very concerned as all the Harfoots are now looking at him warily. And so this guy's been on a real roller coaster with these people. You know, it's like he tries to help, something bad happens. <laughs> like this poor guy is just so practiced in having the look of a dog that shit in the middle of the living room floor and knows he's in trouble. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen this character look like he was in any kind of comfort or like place where he could relax for a second. So (laughs) (laughs) I'm starting to feel real bad for him, too. Oh, I know. And imagine when he learns more words, man. I mean, this guy's got to have some things to say eventually. He's like, you guys are impatient as shit with me. I'm trying my best. Like, you all just, you Harfoots, like, you you guys laugh about abandoning people and people getting eaten. You're trying to ditch me all the time. Like, screw you guys. That's a great take. Especially if they just would have waited, like, 30 more seconds, they would have seen that it was good to go. <laughs> so, yeah, then we see Sadik sitting with the stranger. They're They're up by that tree. Sadik is actually sitting on the branch that fell down and he's pointing to, to a bunch of like a line of cliffs um, way in the distance uh, beyond a, a, a large forest. And he's telling the stranger that if he walks through the forest and past that line of cliffs on the far side, he'll find other big folk. And then he gives he gives the stranger the star map and tells him the people there can help him find his stars. And Sadok tells him that his people haven't seen those stars since they lived in parts unknown thousands of years ago. Uh, the stranger stands, gives Sadok uh, a look of sad repentance, and, and then walks away without a word. And uh, as Sadok walks away, the, the camera shows a flower blooming from the spot on the tree where the stranger had his hands during his spellcasting. And the stranger makes his way through the camp, and the brandy foots and Poppy give him a stoic goodbye. But, you know, Nori kind of bravely steps forward and offers him an apple and he hesitantly takes it, but then walks away. And, oh, man, then we had just one of the saddest scenes ever of Nori talking with Marigold about how she never should have gotten involved and that she's learned that that she's just a little Harfoot. And, you know, Marigold seems to be really saddened by this, despite the fact that she was so she was the one that was so adamantly harping on her not to do this. But now it's like. She's really 180. <laughs> she totally has. She's like, oh my god, I've broken this poor girl's spirit. And I don't think Marigold was was ready for that. That to to under for her to see that that this 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 Nori that we've had all along that is who she is. That's her true self. To be optimistic and and friendly and wanting to help others and curious and to see that squashed out in her. I mean, you just saw it in her face and. Uh, Nori uh, just kind of looks up to the moon as she just absentmindedly works on this wagon wheel. So it's like she's she just wants to she doesn't even want to go to bed. She's like, I'm just going to sit here, you know, with my 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 regret and my sadness. And it was a really sad scene to me. For sure. I mean, it's it was a an amazing life changing moment for her to discover the stranger and 
to feel, you know, be proven right and to do that extensive traveling like we saw in the montage a few episodes ago. They haven't been together a short amount of time or a short distance. So uh, for those events to quickly kind of go down like they did and for that decision to have been made. And I, I really like that there was the instant regret. I, I, again, I like the times where we don't have to let these things sit. And I like that it isn't just being used as a plot device to add some distance or episode length or time to kind of draw these storylines out. I like that there was instant regret. And as we'll kind of talk about now, kind of instant action to fix those mistakes. And so we see Nori then uh, waking up and we get more of that same song that Poppy was singing earlier. And Nori's worried about the fact that Poppy's eating and she tells her that, you know, hey, we got to we got to ration this food. And Poppy kind of smiles and says, hey, take a look around. And and Nori looks out of the wagon and the grove has been fully restored now by morning. The the trees are all full of fruit and the Harfoots are all busy gathering food. And they all know it's because of what the stranger did. And Poppy looks really wistful and, is, you know, she's clearly missing her friend that I think she's she's regretting everything she said the night before. And she's really looking at this as, you know, no, I, I was right to begin with. He, he you know, this he was here to help us and, and he was able to restore the grove. And the Harfoots are just busily loading up their carts. They're taking all these heaping baskets of fruit and putting them all inside their their carts and wagons. And uh, then we see Poppy down by a creek, and she's singing more of that same song while she's gathering water. And suddenly she sees a, a like a man-sized footprint on the bank, and it looks fresh. And man, this disappearing act she does. I loved the way they did this, where she looks down, she immediately stops singing, and then as the camera pans back up, it's just a bucket getting dropped in the water, and she's gone. <laughs> yeah, a smart decision. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> And uh, we see the bucket floating downstream until it reaches uh, the cultists that are standing along the bank. The dweller picks it up and fingers still darkened. So it wasn't just from the ash of the, the landing site where the, the stranger had arrived. Those, those fingers are darkened. So that's creepy. Uh, she looks at the bucket and then kind of looks to her companions and they kind of all share an, like a knowing look with each other. Yeah, it's the recognition that, like, man, we, like, we've won, we messed up, this is great, and wow, we are, like Jake said, we could have waited half an hour to make this decision, and then, obviously, we'll see quickly, like, you kind of got rid of your only security that you had on the road. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that, I mean, it would have been better to know help, but I'm not sure what the stranger could have could have done to uh, help this situation out any like yeah. their magic that they use is pretty swift. Yeah, and they clearly ha have mastered it. Whereas he's he's still just a toddler in this world. Yeah, it looks like a magician's trick when they actually do what they do to uh, the Harfoots. Oh, yeah. seen him like offer himself up, maybe some type of thing, maybe where like they don't lose everything. That's a good point. If he's there, you sacrifice the character. Because that's kind of why they do it is it they seemingly want information, they don't give it to them, and it's like, well, here, yeah. So, so we see nightfall, and the cultists make their way to the apple tree that the stranger had restored, and the Harfoots are all watching this from hiding spots. Uh, the dweller touches the tree, 
and then eventually plucks the flower from it that we saw growing earlier. And she looks at it for a moment and then points in the same direction that Sadak had told the stranger to travel. Uh, they start walking in that direction. And then Nori suddenly jumps out of her hiding spot, runs forward and tells him that that he went the other way. And the cultists immediately disappear and then reappear right behind Nori. And dude, this was like straight out of a horror film, the way that they filmed this with them appearing behind her. And then just that hand with those darkened fingers menacingly reaching down and plucking something out of Nori's hair, whether it was an acorn or a leaf or a strand of hair. All I know is that in anything I've seen, if an evil magician has some part of your hair, shit is not going to go well for you. So I'm wondering if we're going to see um, some some repercussions of this down the road, or if it was just something that they did here just for, for creepiness. Hmm, I never even made that connection, but I think it's a very good one. You see they seem like the kind of people that would collect the hair and use it for some nefarious means. Yeah, they, they don't look like they're good people. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't pick up on that either, but I could totally see that being part of like a locator spell or something like that. Yeah, I like it. Absolutely. And, and Nori's family rushes forward to her aid and Largo thwe- uh, threatens the dweller with a torch, she, like puts it right in her face. And, and she puts her hand out on the torch, and as soon as she touches it, all the fire just disappears from it. And Largo's just looking at it in disbelief as the dweller looks behind it or beyond him. And then she brings her hand to her mouth and blows on it, and ash and sparks go flying from it. And then every single Harfoot wagon in the grove immediately goes up in flames. And the Harfoots just scream in fear as they're watching you know, their wagons and, and all their food that they spent the day gathering is all burning. And so right now we're seeing their food and their way of life all go up in flames, not just one wagon or cart, fucking all of them. So, I mean, this is just a devastating blow to the Harfoots. Yeah. It's all ups and downs for these characters as well. I mean, you described that for the stranger, but (laughs) kind of the whole community has it really bad here. What do you remember what Largo's dialogue is right before all this happens? Like he really says something really threatening to the, uh, to the strangers, not the strangers, but uh, the dweller and and the other two guys. I so he's I, gonna I, I didn't write down the... word for word what he said, but yeah, I mean he's threatening them, <laughs> <laughs> which is admirable because he barely even goes up to their waists. <laughs> yeah, I'd be very scared. Yeah, he, he is ready to go, but then once he sees like the magic trick, it's like, oh, maybe not. Yeah, and and so then the next day we see the Harfoots going through their fire destroyed camp. And they're salvaging what they can, and, and morale is extremely low. And, you know, Largo, he's he's doing his Largo thing. He's being super optimistic, and, and he's getting chastised for it. Um, Sadik even says, uh, you know, just give us a moment to grieve over this, which was really reminiscent of Boromir talking to Aragorn after the party and the Fellowship of the Ring came out of the mines of Moria. And and Aragorn saying, you know, that by nightfall, these hills will be crawling with orcs. We've got to go. And Boromir's, you know, for God's sakes, give them a minute. Um, (laughs) But, you know, in in Largo is you're not going to break this guy's spirit. He he says we're Harfoots. And he looks around the camp. He's got everybody's attention. He says we don't slay dragons. Not much for digging jewels. But there's one thing we can do, I'd warrant, better than any other creature on Middle Earth. We stay true to each other. No matter how the path winds or how steep it gets, we face it with our hearts even bigger than our feet, and we just keep walking. And 
Man, what a great speech. I, I love that Largo got to have this moment to to give this speech like this because it was just so great. And it's what these people needed to hear. It really steals their resolve and especially works for Nori. She immediately throws a bag over her shoulder and she's getting ready to go after the stranger and warn him of the cultists. And Poppy, of course, is <laughs> she jumps right up and says, you know, I'm going with her. With her. And, and shockingly, so is Marigold. Marigold is saying she's not going to let him go without her. And and to add another shock to it, Malva then talks Sadik into joining them because they need a trail finder to find their way. And Malva, <laughs> they need someone to explain to the audience what everything means. <laughs> You've considered that. That's perfect. <laughs> That's really, really funny. I so love- obviously something major intense is going to happen if Sardak is going <laughs> along. And I love that Malva admitted that the girls were right and and she could admit when she was wrong. And and so then Sadik says that he's going to fetch some provisions and his stick. And he says, I'm coming with you. Doesn't matter anyway. We're all going to die. Sadik's going to run into like run into Sauron and be like, oh, I know that guy. We used to hang out. I forgot about you. <laughs> I love the line where it's like, do you think we'll find them? And he's like, they're they're giants. How can we not find them, basically? <laughs> yeah, that's great. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we we get this. The, this scene ends with these four Harfoots setting out in search of their friend. And they're heading into this forest. And I don't know about you guys, but the way that I'm looking at the map and where they're at, I think that this is the forest that's one day going to be known as Mirkwood. Oh, that's a great call. Yeah, so it, they could be. There's lots of scary stuff in Mirkwood. I don't know what Mirkwood was actually like in the Second Age, but man, by the time the 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 events of the Hobbit take place in there in the Third Age, there, I mean, this is a pretty scary forest. It's got orcs, it's got giant spiders, it's got what giants and stuff in it. Also, I mean, this is there's all sorts of stuff for these these Harfoots to all sorts of dangers and perils for them to run into in this forest as, as they go in search of their friend. Yeah. I, and I definitely think we're going to continue the storyline in the finale. I agree. I agree. I think that this is, this is the one to where if I had to put money on one of the storylines that would keep going, we have to get more of the stranger and these cultists, if not like a, Maybe we're going to see these groups crash together and and maybe the, the Harfoots find the stranger in time and, and maybe the cultists get there first. I don't know. We're going to have to wait and see. But I I'm think- betting the cultists get there first for maximum drama. Yeah. I could see it being like a rescue mission. It, it's very we're seeing a lot of parallels to, you know, there being a fellowship now and to there maybe being a splitting of the fellowship and multiple type of missions. But like I said, a few episodes back. Could totally see the the Harfoots being the type of like rescue mission once he's actually captured and doing something because they're overlooking small folk like that and you know, maybe they'll I, I I anticipate them freeing the stranger in some way but being very Sam and Bilbo I mean Sam and Frodo esque yeah absolutely I mean how do you not get those vibes with with four hobbits setting out on an adventure together. Oh, yeah, I got mega Sam vibes off of Poppy when she <laughs> absolutely yeah, volunteered to go as well. Yeah, so I, I'm 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 worried for our Harfoots, but I'm excited for Nori that this is the adventure she's always wanted to go out on. And here she goes. 
yeah, I'm excited to see where this goes. I think this is going to be a big stuff in the finale. All right. Well, jumping to our storyline with Galadriel and the Numenorians in the now destroyed Southlands. Um, this episode actually opens up in this scene right here, and it opens with a close up of Galadriel opening her eye. And she's covered in volcanic ash, lying on the ground. The sky is dark and smoky. There's fires burning all around her. She sees a horse run past on fire. There's dead, dead bodies all around her. And the first person she calls for is Halbrand. And then Elendil. And then she calls for Halbrand again. And then we hear Theo calling for his mother. And she's like, oh, Theo. <laughs> <laughs> And so she bids him to stay with her. And I thought this was a really interesting pair up between Theo and Galadriel, especially seeing the the awe that Galadriel or that Theo, you know, looked at Galadriel with when he saw her during the battle. And um I, I don't know about you, Jake, but the way this episode opened up with a close-up on an eye opening gave me huge lost vibes. Yeah, I got that as well. I, I thought the opening of this episode was very strong. Definitely got the lost vibes. Uh, just the lighting and the effect and everything was just so great here. Uh, Billy made me laugh at the beginning of this episode when he straight up referred to this as terraforming. I don't think in my head I, I'd quite jumped to that yet. But yeah, this is some pretty impressive stuff. But the, but the magic thing in the v- volcano and just terraform the place down. Yeah, it really is terraforming because they're making it more habitable for the orcs that need to live in darkness. It's funny you say that, too, and I was thinking about this for the orcs. It's like if I were one of the orcs, I'd be like, hey, I I just thought you were going to make it darker. Like this is really shitty and and smelly and smoky (laughs) and fiery. Like I thought you were just going to make it dark. (laughs) Why is everything on fire? That darkness comes with a price, my friend. I'm sorry. I mean, <laughs> it really did. We can be out 24 7 now, but you're going to get lung cancer quicker. <laughs> yeah, lots of carcinogens in the environment. Yeah. <laughs> no one's ever going to want to visit. <laughs> we've halved our lifespans, but now it doesn't matter that it's halved because now we've doubled the amount of time we could be outside. <laughs> it all evens out. Oh, geez. And uh, so we see the camera pan past several burning bodies, and it eventually settles on Isildur as he is trying to free Valendil, who is trapped beneath a collapsed building. Uh, Muriel is making her way past with a group of survivors, and she helps Isildur free Valendil. But man, as, as soon as Valendil gets pulled out, we see Antamo's body roll into view, and he didn't make it. And and quite honestly, if we had to pick one of these three who wasn't going to make it, I mean, Antamo was getting the short straw every time. He just had the least amount of dialogue. Oh, yeah, 100% agree. Like, if you would have bet $100, you would have got back 101 here. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, and, po- you know, poor Antamo. The innocence being destroyed and, and people who didn't want to engage in the fight. It's like, hey, it doesn't matter if you don't want to fight. Like, you are part of this fight. I mean, absolutely. And if we even go back to when, you know, they were asking for volunteers back in Numenor for this mission, Valendil throws his hand up right away and he kind of gives Antamo a look like, dude, where's your hand? We got to go do this. And so in a way, Antamo is just dragged along on this. And it to me, it kind of mm. it's reminiscent. And, and this is very Tolkien in a way, too, because it's reminiscent of these young 
men getting lured into war with the promise of glory and adventure and everything. But really, when they get there, coming to find out that war is not glorious and it's not an adventure, it's a fucking horror show. And and that's what Antamo finds out after that first battle. And Isildur and Valendil are talking with him afterwards. And, and Isildur and Valendil are excitedly talking about how they're going to go in the mountains with Galadriel to pursue orcs that got away. And Antamo's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay here and help these people. I've had enough war for a lifetime. And poor guy didn't even make it much past that. And so not surprising to yeah, see it's him It's a huge go, reality check. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And so then Muriel beckons Valendil and Isildur to help her free survivors from a burning building that's uh, nearing collapse. And Isildur is, is holding up this large wooden beam. And that allows Muriel and Valendil to to go into this building and help people escape. And uh, Muriel is about to go back in to help some other people. Uh, uh, Valendil's actually outside getting people out of the way. Isildur is still in the building holding up this beam. And as Muriel is stepping through the doorway, the building collapses. And it throws this big, huge cloud of, of embers and, and smoke and ash at uh at uh, Muriel basically hitting her right in the face and not and blasting her backwards and the scene ends with with Valendil shouting for his friend and then uh we see Mount Doom in the distance with lava flowing down the slopes of it and all the surrounding lands are covered in ash and fire i mean we get lots and lots of shots just showing how fucked this whole area is and and from what we saw in the grove which is Many, many, many miles to the north of Mordor, you know, there was lava bombs that were landing clear that far away. So, I mean, when when Mount Doom went up, it was a tremendous explosion and it has really, really affected this entire countryside. And we, uh, we see Theo and Galadriel. Uh, they're walking along and talking about why it happened. And and it's really interesting that we have this pairing with these two characters here because they both feel a tremendous amount of guilt over what happened. They both feel like this is their fault. And Galadriel is, uh, is, is basically she tells Theo that, you know, this is not your fault. Um, this is, or I think I might be jumping ahead a little bit here. Um, yeah, sorry about that. Getting lost in the bullet points here. Uh, Theo's pretty hot for revenge and, uh, Galadriel basically holds him down and, and says that, you know, this is, this isn't your fault. And, and then we see a, a column of Numenorian and Southland survivors making their way back through the camp. And Elendil sits atop a horse and he's anxiously looking for his son's face amongst the survivors. And at one point he even sees a, a young man walking a horse and he smiles and calls out for his sealder, but it's not his son. And, and then he hears a call of the queen and so Elendil takes off in her direction, immediately jumps off and offers her his horse. And Valandil looks at Elendil with sadness in his eyes. And Elendil says, where's my son? And we see the, the scene switch back to Theo and Galadriel. And Theo is despairing that his mother and Arondir are dead. And Galadriel, Galadriel cautions him against worrying and tells him they're heading to the Numenorean camp. And she cautions him to watch out for orcs because they can now move freely during the day. And Theo asks her about 
about orcs and and she says that she remembers a time before the orcs were even here and and Theo's pretty happy about that and she says don't celebrate evil things lest it darken your heart and then she tells him that soldiers must be mindful of this and so Theo he kind of pricks up a little bit and he's like am I a soldier then and then Galadriel gifts him her sword which I thought was pretty rad because personally me as a young teenage boy you couldn't have done anything more awesome than hand me a fucking sword <laughs> And um, uh, back to the Numenorians, we discover that Muriel has been blinded, and she bids them to continue on and, and help her to camp. Were you guys so surprised that they blinded Muriel? Uh, it was it's the literal darkness that her father was talking about, yep. right? Absolutely. He was only seeing darkness for her in Middle Earth. It was semi-literal. It wasn't the darkness of evil or Mount Doom. It was that she would you know lose her visual sight and. I felt really bad for the character. I mean, this was a character that kind of went against the grain a little bit and made the, the tough decision, really brought the aid that the, our characters in the Southlands desperately needed. And this is her repayment. So it is definitely a tough pill to swallow as a viewer. It took me a second to catch on to what was going on here the first time I watched it. I actually like just took her at face value when she asked when the the smoke was going to go away because I mean just the atmosphere looked so looked so crappy. I thought she was just referring to the way I could see that it looked. And it took just a little bit more dialogue before I realized what had truly happened. I agree. It it was so subtle the way they did it because right before that, they had her on the horse like a branch was like almost like basically hit her in the face as she was walking past and Alindel kind of looks at her like, Oh, she didn't dodge out of the way of that thing. And it almost hit her. And then she asked the question about the smoke and, and yeah, they, they know then that, Oh geez, this, this isn't good. And and I wonder how that's going to go in Numenor. Is this going to just be something that, that helps Farazan consolidate his power more? Is he going to be able to point to Muriel and say, look, she's not whole anymore. I, I don't Those think... are great questions, and I think that that stuff we're also most definitely going to see in the finale. I, I think we got to have Pharaohs on again. We're going to have them returning to Numenor and a little bit of the consequences of what they did, at least at home turf. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if we did get a little bit of Numenor in the finale. That would make sense. Um, I, yeah, I think we need to set this stage for kind of the political intrigue or where the you know they need to leave a little a couple through lines for us to kind of want to see what happens next there. Yeah. And so then we, we get a, a change of scenery and Galadriel and Theo have made a cold camp in a hollow beneath a fallen tree. And Theo asks her if she's ever lost anybody close to the orcs. And she says that her brother, but then we also get something that we've been speculating about is she mentions her husband, uh, Celeborn. And she says that we met in a glade of flowers and I was dancing and he saw me there. Um, and she goes on to say the war seemed very distant, very far away. Uh, when he went to it, I chided him that his armor didn't fit properly. I called him a silver clam. And I never saw him again after that. Um, now, this is something here where we know that Celeborn didn't die because he's in Fellowship of the Ring. We know that he eventually returns to the Undying Lands of Valinor with Galadriel at his side. So where has he been for the last thousand years? Is Is he just hidden away somewhere? Did he actually die? And we're going to see him get maybe rebodied by the Valinor? I mean, this would be a, a pretty big departure from the text, but what is the deal here that they haven't seen each other for a thousand years? 
Yeah, Billy would know better than me, but I believe the story of their meeting and romance is all Cimmerillion stuff. So I think this is kind of the nod to that as we move forward. And I do think we're going to connect those dots to Fellowship, that we're going to see where he's been, because that that's kind of unmined material, right? Yeah, I, that is definitely met in the first age. So, I mean, that's definitely going to be the Silmarillion stuff. So it would be interesting. Are they going to make, has he been a prisoner? Uh, did something happen to him that made him, uh, you know, disillusioned and he he went back? Uh, I'm leaning towards he had to have been maybe imprisoned in some way because I, I just don't see how that reconciles if he's just out and about somewhere, you know, or uh, it's a very I was very surprised when they did name drop because I, I just kind of thought maybe they were going to maybe in some way retcon and have her meet him during the show. So. I'm really interested to see where this goes. I don't think we're going to see him in the finale, but um, maybe, like I said, another name drop and could be definitely a cool major uh, season two character to dive into. It was a bit of a glaring omission, too, until it was name dropped. I mean, Brian had brought it up in a previous episode, just the question of had it even happened yet, which honestly I, I couldn't answer at the time. Yeah, yeah. And, and really this meet cute that she's describing here, Meeting in a glade of flowers and, and, and she was dancing and, and he saw her there. That's actually the way that the, the first stage human elf couple, uh, Luthien and Baron met. And so this is something that they actually borrowed from a, a different love story. Which incidentally, too, that, that ties back to when Tolkien wrote that scene, it was describing a memory of him and his wife. Of her dance. I, I read that Galadriel's whole whole romance is like an analog to his relationship with his wife as well. Oh, that Baron was Luthien. Luthien and stuff. That was Luthien and Baron, and it's actually on their tombstones. Okay. Yep. Yep. He has. It's it's really really cool. I was actually telling Emily that when we were on vacation, and stuff. I was talking about the show in general and brought that up. It was really cool. It's really, really beautiful that you know one of the grand romances that that Tolkien worked into these stories. It's an analog for him and his wife, and and those names are even on the gravestones. It's it's just absolutely beautiful. Um, oh, for sure. And so Theo again asserts that that this is all his fault, not hers, and she assures him that that this wasn't in his heart. And she says, "Do not take the burden of this day upon your shoulders, Theo. You may find it difficult to put it down again." And I wonder how much of that is her chiding herself. And and I think that in this, I think that Galadriel really got knocked down a peg. And I think that a lot of this stuff that she's telling to Theo in this episode are also words for herself. I think that this is a turning point in the Galadriel character. Mm -hmm. It's not just like fortune cookie nonsense. Like this is she has learned the things she is telling Theo from experience and very recent experience at that. And um yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, with all, all the speculation about what's to come of Theo, it, he, he might not heed these words. He might have to learn for himself. Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. Especially if, if eventually he's going to lose his mother, which, you know, I mean, coming up, the, this episode throws that curveball at us again. Is 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 Bronwyn dead? And it's like, how many times are they going to fake out before she's actually gone? And I don't yeah, think I could, he's going to take see, it well. Oh, sorry. Oh, no, go ahead. I could see Theo flashing back to hearing these words again, honestly, at a really strong moment. And him just being like, no, I reject that, you know? Could be. Oh, for sure. And and she goes on to tell him, she says, there are powers beyond the darkness at work in this world. Perhaps on days such as this, 
we've little choice but to trust to their designs and surrender our own. And Theo cannot accept it that this was all by some grander design because he's like, I lost my home. What what design is there in that? And I mean, further further conversation is stopped at the as some a party of orcs approach. And Theo makes to pull out his sword and Galadriel stops him and they just quietly wait as a nearby orc sniffs the air. And he even looks like he might be wearing like new, new, um, uh, new, Numenorian armor, which I thought was interesting. It, 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 if it wasn't Numenorian, it certainly looked like it with those overlapping scale designs. And, and this scene also was another scene that put me in mind of Fellowship of the Ring when, the, when the hobbits are, are along the trail and it's the first time they encounter one of the one of the black riders and they're hiding in that little hollow under the roots of the tree while that black rider jumps down off his horse and is kind of seemingly sniffing the air around him. Yeah, I thought about that scene as well. It's it's one of the most iconic scenes from Fellowship of the Ring. So yeah, hard not to harken back to that here. <laughs> yeah, I remember that from the trailer <laughs> for it even. I mean that yeah, was one of the iconic scenes. Shot. Yeah. Oh man. Um, so then we see at the Numenorian camp, there's a, a soldier is having trouble with the Sealder's horse, Barak, and Elendil tries and fails, and like he's actually begging the horse to listen, but curiously, he's not speaking to the horse in Elvish, like he has in the past. And at the end of the last episode, we saw we saw Elendil calming Barak by speaking to him in Elvish, and the Sealdor asking him in wonder, how did you learn to do that, and, and could you teach me? And so I, I feel like this is just another uh, an, another thing pointing towards Elendil. Just he's blaming this, fully blaming this on on Galadriel and, and the elves, which which I don't think is right. I don't think that it's fully on her. And uh, Elendil says to Valandir that that he never should have brought the elf aboard his ship. He should have left her in the sea where he found her. And uh, we see Galadriel and Theo approach the camp. Theo rushes off in search of his mother, and he sees so many bodies on his way to the medical tent. And there's there's a whole bunch of injured people on cots, and they're suffering from burns and missing limbs. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but this made me think of like a like a Civil War documentary or something like that. You know, I mean, it's just just a horrible place. The the middle medicine in Middle Earth, I think, outside of the Elven realms, is is a bit of a horror show, and these people are all really feeling it, and. Theo thinks that he spots. Yeah, this. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. And this really showed me the scope of like how bad the damage was. Like I, I knew it was bad, but this kind of just really drove that stake home for me. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, so it, as much as we were wondering at the end of that last episode, you know, how's Galadriel going to survive this? It's like, well, maybe, maybe the elven hardiness carried her through. But I mean, it definitely didn't go so well for for a lot of these Numenorians and in these Southlanders, and. So Theo thinks that he spots his mother once as a nurse. Then he spots another one as he sees some long, dark hair, um, you know, basically of a corpse with a sheet over its head. And he's he's reaching down to to pull the sheet aside. And then suddenly his mother, he hears his mother's voice calling his name and she's behind him. He he turns around, gives her a big hug. He sees a rondeer. He rushes over and embraces the elf next. And I, I really thought that was wonderful. I, I love this full turn that Theo has, d- has done, that he's basically fully accepting Arondir as a father figure now. Yeah, for sure. And I'm sure some people are going to be like, why do you have this opinion? But there's part of me that felt like this would have been the totally appropriate time to have one of those major new characters killed off 
I know we have some, you know, light side characters and obviously a lot of name nameless characters killed off in this battle and in the explosion. But I feel like having a, a major character death tied to this major event, I think, would have given it more resonation in a, on a personal standpoint other than just. Are you talking about a Ron Deer? Yes. I, I just even anyone, even if, if Bronwyn or Aaron Deer, like if it, I just thought maybe this I was surprised to see. Everyone, as far as the major characters involved, leave, you know, besides the blindness, you know, unscathed, per se. I'm not a big fan of uh, major characters dying off camera, though. Um, I, I, I do agree that it would have been really crazy to see a main die here. But if the choice was to do it off camera, I would have been upset by that. Yeah, I guess I wasn't really considering the on versus off. I guess if we were going to go that way to have it have had been some sort of event happened last week that led us to believe one of them maybe and then we get that confirmation um but like i said it, it's it's not a, a major criticism but like i said I, we do know that some of them have to make it to certain points so i i just think it would have been a big stakes move to raise the stakes personally for characters we're starting to get invested in uh so we interesting see, uh we oh, see, sorry oh that's okay uh, we see Galadriel enter the scene, and she asks where the Queen Regent can be found. Um, Muriel is sitting on a nearby hilltop with Elendil. She's wearing a blindfold, uh, blindfold, and Elendil is telling her that they're nearly ready to depart, and they'll leave a garrison behind to help assist the Southlanders and to also search for their missing. And, man, he gets an absolutely murderous look on his face when he sees Galadriel approach. Uh, Galadriel kneels before Muriel, and they speak. Galadriel takes fault for them being here, and Elendil steps up. He, he, man, this guy's upset. He says, "Our ships are waiting, my queen. Let us put this land behind our sails." And man, his tone is just—he's oh, just so—he's so over it, and just an absolute look of disgust on his face when he says, "Let's put this land behind our sails." And Muriel touches Galadriel's face. And tells her to save her pity for their enemies, because Muriel is absolutely resolved to return in force and make the enemy pay. And Galadriel tells her that the elves will be ready. And then we see Elendil look away with tears in his eyes. I mean, this guy is, he went from being 100% backing this mission to, they tell me my son died, <laughs> but I'm not going to make this choice myself. His His horse, who is spiritually linked to him clearly wants to run back the way we came it's i i just i'm curious with this turn that they wrote for elendil because it's it's just it doesn't really feel true to the character and and billy kind of like what you were saying earlier that that if they turn this and they actually make him so like he's no longer one of the faithful and, he, and he's now one of the Kingsmen, even for a brief period of time. I think that dad does damage to the character and I hope that's not something they do. Uh, They're a hundred percent doing that. This, this character is hooking up with Farazan a hundred percent. God, that's so, so fucking wild because the, the writers, they're, they're explicitly not supposed to do anything that contradicts the text. And so it's like, how far can they, how much can they swerve on Elendil before they're, they're taking him into something that directly contradicts the text? Because in the text, he is one of the faithful, yeah, J just it, like it was first portrayed earlier in the may, in earlier episodes. They might not be like sharing bunk beds by the end of this, but I do think like in his rashness, he's going to help Farazan. like not even almost intentionally, like just 
in his anger, he's going to let slip some nugget of information that's going to help Verizon. I like that because then he's kind of helping him, but he's not really doing it willingly. It's more Farazan's kind of using his emotional estate to work him for information. That I, I kind of like that angle. I like that. Jay. Yeah. Like he'll, he'll catalyze part of the doom, but he'll realize the error of his ways and still be considered faithful. But it is, a, it is a, it is a shades of gray that they're adding to it because as the story is written and we're all very well aware of what you're saying, the ones who stay truly faithful are the ones who are saved. And it's, does that mean you are allowed to waver as long as you end up back on the right side by the end? And that's that's a little bit where they're kind of playing with the the meaning of that text that I always read is pretty black and white. But I guess it does make for some maybe, you know, obviously more interesting television characters, you know, to have some sort of an arc and have them not just be pious, per se, the entire five season run. That's a really good point. We we do need to see this guy go on some sort of arc. And if he just stays, you know, the pious, full-on believer the entire time, then, yeah, I, I, I like that too, Billy. That's – okay. Okay. I, I I'm on better footing I'm, I'm with saying this now. That is, <laughs> we need to so – listen, we all know where this is going in the end. Isildur doesn't destroy the ring. And I guess what they need to do is show us that there are some faults in that bloodline and that they aren't perfect men because – a perfect man would make the decision, the right decision at the end. And we know inevitably this family is going to screw up and make the wrong decision in regards to the ring. So I guess we also, if they were perfect, the whole show, you're really just going to say, oh, well, the ring corrupted them in that moment. So I, as I'm saying this, I'm, I'm starting to kind of make the counter argument against it. But it, it is for, I do agree that it is frustrating <laughs> to see this guy as a character make this sudden shift like that. Yeah. Yeah. The hardest part to swallow, and you guys have brought it up, is that he would just like abandon his son. Yeah, he's not even like, like, oh, like, oh you, you just, what, you just left him there? He's dead, yeah, and you right. just left him. You hate him Middle there. Earth so much. You're just going to leave this place behind and leave your sons. Like, there's so much honor and like burial and stuff for these races. Like, to just leave the body there to be ravaged by the orcs and, you know, done with what will. That, that part just seems absolutely bizarre. It's like his wife died in Numenor, or we're kind of saying off of Numenor, where she drowned. But like he didn't leave Numenor, right? So it doesn't it doesn't seem to add up. Yeah. So so then we see Muriel standing on the deck of a Numenorian ship, and it, it, they look to be traveling down the Anduin River, heading back to the Sundering Sea. So the the Numenorians are leaving, and Arondir and Galadriel are watching the ship depart from a nearby hill, and Galadriel is certain that they're going to return. And Broadwin approaches and says they're ready to travel. They're going to be going to an old Numenorean settlement near the mouth of the Anduin called Pelarge. Uh, people familiar with the Fellowship will remember this. This is where um, Aragorn and Gimli and Legolas, along with the 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 army of the dead, uh, uh, um, stop all those Corsairs ships that are coming in to support uh, Sauron. The largest port uh, of Gondor, once Gondor is founded, and like you said, it's the main kind of uh, harbor that leads directly to Minas Tirith and Osgiliath. So. Yep, and uh, Galadriel says that she's going to go inform her king and basically just take whatever punishment's coming her way. Uh, for sure, Gilgalad's Gil not going to be excited to see her. Um, she's promising the elves will be ready, and he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> 
<laughs> and then uh, Bronwyn asks, what of their king? And so we find out that Halbrin has been injured. Uh, we see him laying on a cot in a tent. Uh, some Southlanders find him, found him along the road. He had been wounded. It looked like he'd maybe been, like, maybe stabbed in the side or something. And Bronwyn is saying that the wound soured overnight and he is slowly dying. Uh, Galadriel takes one look at the wound and says that he needs elf medicine. And I, I don't know about you guys, but I was like, that's just another nail in the coffin of Halbrand is most likely Sauron because it's like, how is he going to get before the elves? Well, here you go. He needs elvish medicine. She's going to be taking him either to Eregion or she's going to be taking him to Linden. Um, but he's definitely going to elvish lands. Yeah, I think they go straight to Linden. And then I think that leads when I think everyone's going to be at Linden. There's Celebrimbor. There's the first meeting. Um, now, if he keeps the Halbrand form or not, or whatever the case may be, this is the beginning of him getting to meet Celebrimbor. And I, again, I just the Brian theory that's been from the beginning that Halbrand is Sauron. A lot of other things we can talk about here, but I agree with you. I think this episode strengthened that theory even more. Well, yeah, because what if he meets Celebrimbor? What if there he's in Linden? He meets Celebrimbor. Celebrimbor finds out, oh, this is this is a king among men. That he has my attention. I'll talk to him. What do we have in common? We're both smiths. We both make beautiful shit. I mean, all all the stuff is just right there waiting to happen. And <laughs> hey, look at this stuff Elrond just brought. <laughs> exactly. How convenient. <laughs> oh, oh, you you say your lands are dying, but it's like how is how is how is Halbrand going to work into the conversation? Your lands are dying. I know of a way that you can make these magical rings that will preserve your lands. Like how, how, how does that come in that, that, that Halbrand this this human granted, he's a King and whatever. How is he going to, to know this stuff is, is it going to be something that's in that pouch? Is there going to be something in that pouch? That's like, like an old, like fucking little bit of a scroll or something like that. I'm just curious how they're eventually going to cross that bridge because I do feel like we're heading towards it. Maybe it's a ring. And you're not like a ring of power per se, but a ring and it's kind of the symbolism of it, you know, type of thing or the prototype. Yeah, there's going to have to be something that's going to bring like you said, bring that conversation kind of full circle. And we've seen kind of in the previews, they talk, they're starting to kind of debate the items and we know that they'll eventually settle on rings. So, again, it's going to be very interesting. And in the books, they mentioned, you know, Galadriel never trust and especially um uh, why am I blanking right now? The the king Gilgalad. Uh, Gilgalad, yeah, Gilgalad like never trusts Sauron, and he sniffs him out pretty quickly in this in the text. So I'm very interested to see next week if people start to suss on him. And also, it's like Halbrand. I felt like this episode, especially when they saw him. Now I know he's wounded, but it's he has had a different look to him. This the look in his eyes. He looked much more sinister. And again, I know that he was stabbed and such, but it's to me, it's like his look changed post that event he just was carrying himself differently and even when he was walking off and riding away just the the amicableness of him seemed to have faded pretty quickly yep and and he swears that he's not going to abandon these people he's going to come back and his people call strength to the king as he makes his way to his horse and then theo offers galadriel her sword back and she bids it to keep it again calling him a soldier and then galadriel and halbrand ride off Towards Elvish lands. Uh, Another storyline we're definitely going to see more of in the finale. Oh, for sure. For sure. And Do you think the finale is going to be like 90 minutes? 
Dude, that'd be sweet. I sure I, hope so. I sure hope it's just a little bit longer. I mean, we've been getting that just sub of an hour, just over an hour. I, I'd love even a, a 90 minute episode would be one. Yeah, I me agree. too. I agree. And, and it's like, I feel like they do have a lot of stuff that they need to wrap up in this because I, I didn't expect this episode to just be so much table setting. And, mm-hmm. um, okay. So then we get another, uh, change in scene. We're still in the destroyed Southlands, but now we're with Adar and the Uryx and Adar build bids his children to remove their sun cloaks and helms. They no longer need it. And this is their land. Now their home. And Waldrig begins a chant, uh, hail Adar, Lord of the Southlands. And the chant gets taken up by the Uryx, which I thought was really interesting that, that Waldrig is, is now like the guy leading the wave in <laughs> the, in the orcs are like, yeah, okay, we'll, 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 we'll continue this chant for you. <laughs> yeah, he's like the head Laker girl of this group, basically. <laughs> so funny. He, I thought he was just going to be some one-off side character, and this <laughs> dude has done some major offense. No shit. And, um, so then, uh, Adar tells him, you know, no, that's, that's the name of a place that no longer exists. And Waldrig asks him, well, what should we call it instead, Lord Father? And Adar looks very wistful as the camera pans up to show Mount Doom. In the background, lava still going down its slopes and the, the, I mean, everything is, I mean, there's trees still burning in the background, just smoke pouring out of it. And you see text appear on the screen that says the Southlands and then it erases and changes to Mordor and then credits. And we kind of discussed this earlier at the top of the episode. None of us were a huge fan of of the way they handled this with the text on the screen. Uh, from a lot of buzz I've heard on the internet, it's not very popular there either. Though the internet is a dangerous place to try and look up opinions of this show. Uh, <laughs> oh, you tell yeah, me. It's, it's 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 a the, the negative opinions about the show are very loud on the internet. And it, it pained me to like agree with the sect in that. I was like, oh Same. no, I'm, I'm there too. And, uh, <laughs> you know, we, we get a chance, problem. we get a chance to kind of watch these episodes a little bit early. So we, we, we get to watch it before like the public reception. And, uh, I was, I was taken aback by how disgusted by this people were. I'm like, oh, I, I guess it's not just me. <laughs> that's one of the things that's very interesting too is that like on Thursday, Sauron was trending on Twitter and people were like, everyone was saying, Sauron reveal this episode, Sauron reveal. And meanwhile, we're all sitting, the three of us, four of us are sitting there like, oh, they're just going to be super mad over text. So they think they're getting Sauron. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a, that's a real swerve there. I, and you guys, in that beginning discussion we had about this, honestly, Billy talked me into the just don't show anything at all. Like the dialogue clearly says, what do we call it? You pan up, you know, you know what it is. Yeah, they, they should have either had Adar just say it. I mean, because they, they do so well with with all the words and, and speaking these these elvish words and stuff in this show. And to just have him, you know, roll those R's out would have been perfect. Just, you know, Mordor. <laughs> it is, or just, it just it Mordor. Says, it says like. <laughs> The Shire. <laughs> it's just like, like, oh, wait, this isn't Mordor? <laughs> it just felt very out of place. Like, I don't know if we've had one single bit of text come up on a screen, like, saying a location, really, of where we're at. They've we previously have in the first couple episodes, right? Yeah, in, they... the very, in, the, in the pilot, yeah. Okay, well, I know for sure they did they did stuff where, you know, they were showing it on maps. And so I thought it would have been better utilized to do it as, like, 
a little bit of fun with a map on this. And if they're going to do the erasing and rewriting, do it there. But even I still think just that whole concept of text on the screen, erasing it and rewriting is just a little silly. And, and it, it, you know, the, the people who have listened to all seven and then, you know, eight episodes, including our second breakfast one, the people who've listened to all our episodes of this, they don't get many gripes from us about this show. So it isn't like we're coming on here every week and just bashing this show. Um, so, I mean, this is kind of a legitimate gripe. It is, it is, was a weird choice that they did it that way, in my opinion. I think we're all in agreement there. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely bizarre. <laughs> I'm sorry I complained about the who is this guy endings that we had in the first couple episodes because this, Ooh. this took the cake. <laughs> I, uh, I guess it's just like something kind of towards like the closing here, but I mean, it's crazy that we're at the finale already. It I know. It's just crazy. Yeah, dude, these 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 seven episodes have gone by so fast in over, what, six weeks? Because we got two, the first two at first. Um, Correct. Man, it's just gone by so fast. Um, I'm, I'm going to be both happy and sad when it's over, if you guys know what I mean. <laughs> I, I, compl- I completely understand. Completely understand the feeling. Yeah. Are we it's exciting on bit. so many levels for next week. Mm hmm. And um, I know there was a lot of stuff, and I think we should definitely save it for uh, when Brian comes back. But like, oh, well, dude, well, there was one thing, Jake, I think you should point out the musical thing uh, first before I get to what I was going to get to. That was something maybe worth bringing up. Oh, yeah. I, I read a lot about the score and a lot of people dissecting the score. And one thing that really stuck out to me is a lot of people are pointing out that Halibrand has a theme and the main motif of that theme is a major scale version of Sauron's theme from the Howard Shore peter jackson movies just played in reverse so i mean you can't can't just stop yeah you can't stumble into that um that's the kind of thing composers do all the time too like john williams plays with that kind of thing in a ton of the the star wars movies like just taking themes that you know and just moving them around in reverse and different scales and making them other things themes that are related to them uh there's a lot of relations between uh anakin's theme from the prequels and the imperial march from the original trilogy that's using that kind of technology and um so yeah i don't think there's no way this is an accident there's a lot of a lot of musical notes and this was definitely intentional and on purpose so yeah i 100 percent agree yeah, absolutely. Hard to believe purposeful. they would do it for any other reason than this character is Sauron. Thank you, because if if that's not the way they're going, then they're fucking full on trolling us, which is just rude. <laughs> I mean, absolutely rude. If the if if they're laying all these breadcrumbs to just be like, nope, because I mean, you do a couple of those to to lay a trail for a red herring. You don't do this much work. You don't reverse a, a freaking. A theme from the main bad guy and then make it at somebody who's not the main bad guy. It's just too much work to go through and not have it be legit, you know? You know, as I was talking about it out loud, though, in my head, I was thinking, you know, Bear McCreary is pretty spicy on social media. Like, I I haven't followed him until, like, this series started, and he's he's all over the place. So, I don't know. I'm starting not to put it against this guy that he would do this as insane misdirection. <laughs> that's, a, that's just oh. a lot of misdirection from a lot of different angles. If it ends up not being God, true. I yeah. Not. Yeah. I, really, I agree. I, I really hope not. But um, I did see too. I think it would be great to talk about next week. When we do talk the finale. Uh, there was um, some good articles that came out this week, specifically about the filming of season two and some of the 
you know, things going in. They even mentioned little teases of some of the episode structure for next season, which we'll definitely save for the finale and, and looking forward to season two for sure. Excellent. Uh, well, that's pretty much all I got on my notes here, guys. Do you got anything else? No, no, I'm good. No, I think we're good, man. Well, right on. Well, um, let's see. Um, well, you can find me on Startcast at uh, Long Form Conversations. Uh, they got new episodes dropping every Saturday. Um, Jake? Yeah, um, me and Brian do a show called Pop Culture Leftovers. We talk about the newest movie and television shows. We do news, heavy focus on Star Wars, Marvel, DC. Uh, we're taking a week hiatus this week, but the week after that, we'll be coming back with a uh, episode completely centered around the new Black Adam movie. A lot of hype going around that movie because uh, a lot of people have seen it and they've seen the post credit scene and it is not being kept under wraps. So if you probably know what I'm talking about, it's going to be a pretty fun discussion in two weeks on pop culture leftovers. Uh, and you can find me on the reality guys on YouTube. We cover everything and anything reality television. And if you maybe not be your normal cup of tea, we do do it with a little bit of a spin. It is really focused towards regular guys watching it. And, um, at anything from survivor bachelor amazing race the challenge um are you going to cover the new mole billy uh we are currently watching it right now and we're going to do a, an episode over the next few days for week one and then we'll go week two week three so um no we have a lot of fans out there out in the leftover army and in our general listenership so uh, make sure to check out reality guys on youtube and to hear from some of your other hosts you like to hear we're gonna have some of the guys on soon so yeah, you guys do great work. I'm excited to see the mole content. It's been a great series. So I love, I love it. I'm on episode five now, the first week. So I'll be completely caught up in a few minutes. Awesome. All right, that sounds great. Uh, thank you all very much for listening. Be sure and join us next week when we break down the season finale, and we will be back at full strength with Brian returning. And uh, can't wait to see how this is going to go. It's been a phenomenal season so far, and I got high hopes going into the finale. Yeah, I've had anxiety all week that they're not going to give us this one early and that we're going to have to to watch it along with everyone else. I don't know why I feel that way. <laughs> oh, shit. I hadn't even considered that yet. I'm going to be heartbroken if I got to wait clear till Friday. <laughs> Getting spoiled. Spoiled by these screeners from Amazon. <laughs> I know. I know. All right. Well, uh, thank you all very much. Uh, later. Later. <laughs>